This week on A Lively Experiment, the governor proposes a ban on so-called assault-style weapons, but does he have the votes in the General Assembly? And the chorus grows for a deeper cut in the state sales tax. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with their thoughts, Emily Lynch, political science professor at the University of Rhode Island, former state representative Nick Gorham, and political contributor Jim Vincent. Hello and welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. Governor McKee made good on a line from his State of the State address last month, formally proposing a ban on assault-style weapons this week. He had all of the general officers with him at the State House announcement on Tuesday, but notably absent House Speaker Joe Sicarci and Senate President Dominic Ruggiero, who were both non-committal when questioned about the proposal later in the day. Um, Nick, let me start with you. Uh, if you don't have the Speaker and the Senate President, that is always problematic, but it's not impossible as the session goes on. Well put. I, I agree. I think they try to keep as much room as they can, given the diverse membership and the diverse views of membership on the Second Amendment. It's a volatile issue, so I'm not surprised they didn't actually come out and say what they were going to do or endorse it. But um, I would just say I think we should work on the, reg the red flag laws even more. I think the real problem is that we have too many crazy people with guns and we haven't figured out a way to take the guns away expeditiously enough so that no one gets hurt. That's the problem. So do you think, and I again, a lot of people who, who oppose further restrictions on, on guns have said this is feel-good legislation but it's not going to do anything. Would you agree with that or do you think it would do something? I'm not going to trivialize it as feel-good legislation. I, I think the people who are trying to take away assault weapons, uh, I think they believe what they're doing. I just happen to believe that it's the people who are shooting the guns that we really, really need to focus on and we haven't done that. And I will say this. Um, if we don't start focusing on the red flag laws and honing them and making them better, it's going to undermine the efficacy of the Second Amendment. Yeah. So anybody who's a Second Amendment advocate should absolutely be in favor of making red flag laws better. You know, last year, really, gun control wasn't on anybody's mind, Emily, until Uvalde. And that kind of, and you know, it does. Political reaction kind of gets driven by the events of the day. This is something, no matter what else is going on at the State House, we always seem to have the rallies up there for gun control. Definitely. Um, and I think we, that when we think about rallies, that's one area of uh, public opinion in assessing an individual's or, or um, a state's level of, of uh support for gun control, uh, but we also want to look at elections, and that's what Governor McKee had mentioned, how um, in the past election you had gun control advocates um, that were voted in, um, some who were highly visible in Moms Demand Action. Um, so that is one other area you could assess how the Rhode Islanders feel about gun control. Um, and there was also, uh, we need more uh, public opinion polls here specifically in, in Rhode Island, but there was one in June. You can look th uh, at that one. And uh, there was overwhelming support for um, an assault weapons ban. 
so if we look at those different ways, di different dimensions of public opinion, then support is there by the public. But we do also have to um, look at some of uh, the gun rights groups that are saying that maybe there needs to be more of a focus in other areas of um, maybe providing more um, support for low-income areas, communities, uh, and, and youth. So, um, so that could be another area. James? Well, I think it's a step in the right direction, and I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. Uh, I think that you had all the constitutional officers, including Peter Nerona, the top law enforcement official, basically arguing for a ban. And everybody that ran on it, other than the constitutional officers, won. So I think that, you know, you have 41 uh, co-sponsors in the House, and we haven't uh, really uh, heard anything in the Senate yet. But I, I'm encouraged that there's going to be that ban. And, and after, you mentioned Volvaldi, Jim. Uh, uh, Senator Ruggiero said, we have to do something about what's happening out there. Every day it gets worse. He said that. This is uh, in, on the Senate side. So I think that, you know, you're looking at uh, momentum building. It didn't hurt. It didn't help, I should say, that in the first month of this year, you had 50 mass shootings. So I think there's a momentum that's building up. And I think, in fact, this year, you might just have a ban on assault weapons for all those reasons. It's inconceivable in this, in this divided country that we have now that for 10 years there was a federal assault weapons ban. And I know the, the, the stats are mixed on how that was, but I didn't realize. So from 94 to 2004, we had it and then it sunsetted out. When that went in, what were your thoughts back then? What was the year that it went in? 94. <laughs> I know you have to go to the and way back machine. it sunsetted in 2000. 94 and I'm, it sunsetted in I'm trying to think if I was in the House of Representatives then. I was not. Um, what, what, so I didn't think anything then as a state representative. It, the sunset came through in 2004 and I was in the House. I don't remember any discussion about it, which doesn't surprise me. If you're going to let something go, you let it go quietly if you want it to go because you don't want the publicity. But... Um, yeah, that's an interesting point, that there was a ban, and somehow they've not been able to bring it back. Um, I still, you know, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I just think the real problem is mentally ill people and guns. If you look at all these mass shootings, there's one common denominator. They may use different weapons, but they always have the same problem. They have mental illness. Why else would you go out and shoot? tens of, you know, dozens of people. Yeah, There's the only one argument reason. to that, though, is if you don't have the gun available, it doesn't matter what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I was I, just going to say that, Jim. Uh, every country in the world has people that have mental illness, but you don't have these enormous disparities in terms of gun violence. It's the guns. And in terms of that impact, in terms of that federal ban, there has been evidence that that was effective, that, that there was less mass shootings. So for those reasons, I feel that, you know, the, the time has come, and, and that's going to be now. I think this year, that there'll be an assault weapons ban. And I mean, at the federal level, we did see some bipartisan support last year um, for some movement that we hadn't seen in decades uh, for gun control legislation that went through. But now with uh, Republicans in the majority in the House, I don't see it going anywhere. Uh, one last thing, Mick, last time we had you on, or one of the last times we had you on, we talked about the magazine ban. Yes. And that is now working its way through court. Jack McConnell, the U.S. District Court judge, rejected that appeal. Yes. But you said constitutionally, and I remember clearly you talking about that, that you said you didn't think that was going to be hold up legally the ban because of how the Constitution is written. Can you, do you remember that conversation we had? The, um, 
The magazine ban? Yeah, the ban. magazine ban. Do you um, still feel confident that that appeal might go through? Well, I read uh, uh, Judge McConnell's decision. It was pretty well reasoned. Um, you know, it's, it's not really, I mean, it's part of a firearm, but, um, you know, the piecemeal approach may be the better approach in how to um, eliminate just guns that go on and on forever. Uh, not forever, but with um, large magazine capacity. Um, how do I feel about it now? Um, I think the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment, and uh, especially the federal Second Amendment. The Rhode Island Supreme Court in the Mosby case really diminished to some degree the effect of the Rhode Island Second Amendment, which is plainer and simpler, and I think clearer. But to answer your question, um, I, I think, I mean, my belief is the Second Amendment protects arms. That was the point of it. Uh, there was a good reason for it uh, when the Constitution was written. I think the real, the real remedy, if you want to change it, is to change the Constitution instead of fighting about what it says. Make it clear. Yeah, and in other countries. I mean, Canada does not have the Second Amendment. You could argue what's different about the United States. Well, because they've always gone back to those constitutional protections. All right, to be uh, continued. Um, the uh, death of Tyree Nichols in uh, Memphis has, has sparked discussion about police reform all across the country. Certainly it's reignited it here in Rhode Island. And Jim, it gets back to the old Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. You know, maybe a little bit of apples and oranges because I think there's a larger issue what's going on in policing. But that's something that we talked about last year that we really thought, I wrote a long article for the journal about it, that we thought something was going to go through. And then, honestly, I think Uvalde and some of the other things in the session just sucked all the air out of the room. Your thoughts about going into this session? I think in this session you are going to see um, some House sponsors, maybe more than even the one or two or three, for the repeal of Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. And I, and I, and I think most people know. A re repeal or a massage? Repeal, okay? Uh, I think it's going to be tough, but I think that there's no credible argument to have the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. We're the only New England state that has it. Only 14 of the United States has it. So to me, you know, it's due process <laughs> on top of due process. It's justice deferred, which to me is justice denied. Because if it takes two years to fire somebody, and if that situation in Memphis had happened in Rhode Island, it probably would take two years to fire those officers. It's just untenable. You've you got to have something that's a due process that makes sense. In the other states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, they don't have it. The sky's not falling. You don't hear any clamor in terms of uh, police uh, management relations going south. I just think that at this time, we have a moment. We thought, you know, George Floyd, we'd never see something like that again. Now we have Tyree Nichols. We need to take this moment and do something tangible in terms of an action step. It's not a panacea, but it's a big step in the right direction. We don't need it. Nobody's given me a credible argument to keep it, and so I maintain my stance that we need full repeal of the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights or Leobor. We used to have Ann and Hope. We used to have Benny's. We, we live, we're living without it. We can live without Leobor. Yeah. There you go. From your lips to God's ears. Uh, you know firsthand from being in the, in the General Assembly that the police lobby is pretty heavy, and they've beaten back attempts. This went in in 1974, so it's been around a long time. Yes. Um, well... Some people forget the Policeman's Bill of Rights in Rhode Island is in, in large part reviewed by the courts. Um, I 
took one of the seminal cases involving the policeman's bill of rights to the Supreme Court, the Sabetta case, a gentleman who is a police officer. He killed... Yeah, Bobby Sabetta out in yes, Foster. Yes, out in Foster. And I was his solicitor at the time. We took it to the Supreme Court. It was a terrible result. It shouldn't have happened, and the Supreme Court agreed and changed it. And so um, our Supreme Court has clarified uh, the rights under the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, and they're not, you know, as strong as people think. And I just think at this point in time, um, you know, I think you need to support the police and you need to get rid of the bad police. And just because there is an event in one place or another that's not in Rhode Island, um, I don't think it's time, that, I don't think that that's a bellwether to eliminate the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights. I've supported law enforcement uh, you know, all my life and as a legislator. Um, the other thing is the, the difference may be more apparent than actual. Police officers have the right to collectively bargain and their collective bargaining agreements are very powerful. They collect, they protect police officers. Uh, they give them a lot of due process. And of course, you'd, of course, Jim then would say, well, why do you need the redundancy? But I'm just saying, if you think you're going to have a sea change when you repeal the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, I don't think that's true. I don't think it's going to happen like that. They have good collective bargaining agreements. Emily? Um, <clears throat> I, would, I, I think that it would be difficult to have a full repeal of the Bill of Rights. And um, I think you see support by the, and there's been um, explicit support by the leadership in the House and the Senate for some reforms that we've seen that have been um, discussed and, and brought up in the past few years. Um, and even the Rhode Island Police Chiefs Association have supported some of these reforms. So what we see in politics is it's, it doesn't necessarily, it's very difficult to have a full repeal. We see incremental changes. Yeah. Exactly. So. And that's what happened with the drunk driving laws years ago. It was a civil penalty, and then it was 0.1, and now it's 0.08. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe that's the problem. There were so many changes last year, and I'll get to you in a second, so many changes that it's like, okay, we can't deal with it. Well, let's just put it off to the side. Right. But this is the time. There, with, with the horrific events of, of that in Memphis of, of tire, the death of Tyree Nichols, then um, this could be the time uh, for some reforms. Jim, you sat on that commission that looked at it for almost a year more. Right. You and only one other person? No, said no. How many people wanted a full repeal? About a third of the group okay. wanted a full repeal. Okay. A third of the group, and that doesn't get out too often. And, I, and this whole notion of uh, holding police accountable means they're anti-law enforcement. I don't, I don't accept that premise. You can be for full accountability of law enforcement and pro-law enforcement at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. And I think that, you know, you have a different kind of uh, composition of the House and the Senate now than you had before. So I think the time is right for that repeal. There's no credible argument to keep it other than the fact that we've always had it. Yes, 50 years ago was needed because you had rogue chiefs that were doing things that they shouldn't have done. So I agree that at some point, Officers in rank and file needed that support 50 years ago. So if you eliminated it all together, and so the three major proposals for change were increasing the minimum two-day suspension without going through a hearing to 5, 10, 2 weeks, 14. 14 days, whatever. The other one was expanding the panel from 3 to 5, and then the other was being able to talk a little bit more about it. If you eliminated it all together, what discretion does that give the chief? Can the chief then suspend for 
how long? Or does it go to each individual contract? It would go to the individual contract, I would guess, the same way it does in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and 35 other states in the United States. The same thing that they have. They don't have a law enforcement bill of rights, but there's management and police relations that go on every single day in this country. It'll be the same. We don't need to be the state that has the, the, the strictest rules in terms of disciplining police. I've heard that in Rhode Island, this state, it's the hardest state in the country to fire a police person. We don't need to be that kind of outlier. I mean, that is something that we don't, I mean, we want to be the first in, every, in, in some things, but we shouldn't be the first in that. You want final word on that? Well, <clears throat> um, I think what Emily said, uh, I, I tend to agree with her. I think it's worth looking at reform, and I think they probably will do that. I think they're probably going to have to do something just uh, with their tenure to the ground yeah. up at the General Assembly. But I, I agree with Emily. I think they'll probably do that. Um, and you never know. We may get some really good reform. Uh, but repealing it, I, I don't see it happening, and I don't really support it. Okay. We'll see that as the course of the uh, session goes on. The other thing that's beginning to pick up steam, we talked about it here last week, is that uh, Governor McKee uh, proposed a, a very modest um, some would say minimal reduction in the state sales tax. There are lawmakers on each side, Republican and Democrat, who are saying that needs to be more. So ultimately, that's going to have to go through the sausage maker, Emily. But you hear a lot of people say, so Kathy Gregg tweeted out last night, it wasn't a 77 Dollar savings for everybody. It's actually thirty-nine dollars. So if you were banking on that seventy-seven to take everybody to uh, the movies, it's not happening. I already spent the money. Yeah, there you go. Well, Nick, I you, you need to be difference. a little more fiscally conservative. I thought you were a Republican. Um, so, so what about this? I mean, it sounds great in theory, but ultimately, you've got to find cuts somewhere else to balance the budget. So, is it realistic that it would? You know, it's not included in the governor's budget. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't seem like it's palatable maybe for uh, the Rhode Islanders as to, okay, what is this really going to have? An, how is this going to have an effect on uh, my wallet? Uh, and then we do have some um, uh, ideas of, of reducing it even further. But what do you do with that lost revenue? Um, I think this is, I think we have to uh, really consider what not only what if you're going to cut uh, the sales tax or any type of tax okay so what how does that influence um, what we are spending yeah okay. so the thought so. is if you take it down to five percent as the house uh, Senate minority leader Jessica Dela Cruz said that cost them was 500 million dollars so that's you know that's a tenth more than a tenth of the budget but does that you know it's not going to happen immediately does that mean more people are going to come to Rhode Island so then more people are going to be buying and then it goes up that probably takes a year that's a big hole to fill is it not 500 million yes um, but I think that I like their robust idea I think it was um, Gordon Rogers, the Senate Minority Whip, and the Minority Leader Jessica De La Cruz, De La Cruz, who endorsed the five percent. I think we need to make a robust message to the rest of New England that it's it's worthwhile to come. We're to Rhode open Island. for business. Open for business, absolutely. And it's a, there's a good chance that there would be uh, 
not so much lost revenue. And as to lost revenue, um, maybe we could look at the size and scope of Rhode Island government and say, maybe we could save money in a few places and afford to have... Oh, Nick, uh, you're always negative. Come on now. You're always, negative. You're always I mean, negative. I'm positive about the, the Republicans' proposal. It's robust. It's gutsy. And I think it should be carefully examined. And it's not only Republicans. You have two Democrats on the House side who have said the same thing. Well, I don't know. Um, $500 million, and that's $500 million every single year going out uh, for as long as the eye can see. Uh, that money has to be made up. Uh, I'm never going to uh, uh, not uh, want to save some families or individuals money. But what are we talking? $39, maybe we're going to save $300 a year per family in, in this difference? Between? What about 6% and then you have to make up $250 million? Or does the 6% not move the needle to bring people to Rhode Island? Probably not. Probably you would have to have, if you're going to move the needle, probably have to go down to 4% if you're going to really move the needle. And that would be a six to seven hundred million. Zero? A six or seven hundred million dollars. Are you advocating for that, Jim? I'm not advocating for a seven hundred million dollar loss on the budget. No. No, I'm not. But what I'm saying is that at what, at what point does that make a difference? I'm not sure in terms of individuals and families. Uh, you know, in Massachusetts, they gave everybody a check. Can we give a check? Probably not. They, cut, they, they have a millionaire's tax, which they're raising $1.3 billion in Massachusetts to do that, because I've heard that argument. Why don't you just give everybody a check? I'm not sure uh, what impact it's going to have. I just think the optics. We've got $600 million. And I understand what you're saying. It's not only now. It's like the car tax. That's it's right. going to continue. But you've got $600 million surplus and a, and a right. billion dollars sloshing right. around. This who's, year. Whose money is that? It's our money. It's our money. And lost revenue is not the mantra. The mantra is cost-cutting in government. And if you do them in tandem, nothing bad happens. Yeah. So Last it's our went. money. I heard the speaker say yesterday at the Warwick Rotary uh, uh, meeting um, that a lot of that money is because of the, the lost positions in the state government, because of the pandemic. And if you start hiring people to fill those positions, then you, could, you won't believe how fast that $600 million I think Representative go Gore down. might say maybe we don't need to hire those people. There's an idea. Jeez. Either way. Right. Fi final thoughts on this, on sales tax? Um, I, I just think we have to consider the spending, and if you reduce that tax, what's going to get hit? And we have complaints about the roads, the, the infrastructure. What, where are we going to you know, pull that money from? You know right? where, a, what's, who's you going know to lose it? It's a $13.7 billion dollar budget. Did you know that? I do. I did. I think it was How six. much was it when you were there? I think it was six, six when I started. We always house. say that. Hey, Nick, way back when, how oh, much no. was it when you <laughs> were there? Oh. All right, let's do this. I have a couple of national things, but let's go to, um, let's go to outrageous and or kudos. Mr. Vincent, what do you have? I'm going to surprise you and do another kudo. Okay. And this time it's uh, for Hugh Clement, uh, the chief of Providence who's going down to Washington. Really great guy. I was on the <laughs> search committee um, when um, Angel Tavares was looking for a new chief and and I know I uh, felt that Hugh Clements was the guy at the time. About five years ago, uh, there was a police uh, community um, uh, conference in Washington, D.C. He uh, asked me to go with him, and uh, we got, I got a chance to get to know him. And I think that it's going to be deja vu all over again, and that when we saw there was a vacancy of the state police chief, I think Colonel Manny elevated Darnell Weaver to number two because he was going to advocate to the governor that Darnell be the chief. And I think you're going to see the same thing. I know there's going to be a And community. he was a career guy. He right. wasn't coming in, you know, and, and Mayor, and, and Mayor Smiley has a community meeting, and I think everybody should go to that. He also has a survey. Everybody should participate in that. But I think he's going to heavily rely on Hugh Clement 
in terms of recommendation. Hugh Clement recently elevated Oscar Perez to number two. I'm going to make a prediction. Oscar Perez will be the next uh, uh, chief of the Providence Police. That's a hot take from Jim Vincent. You Save the take. For, all right, we'll, we'll re-rack that. Emily, what do you have this week? Um, so my, it's sort of an outrage slash kudo where um, uh, the outrage is that lead poisoning is still a concern for Rhode Islanders, young children, um, and there's been some media coverage on this where um, you have young children in Central Falls, other areas of the, the state that due to COVID were in their homes for longer periods of time. And um, and I think the, the kudos here is that there is coverage of this and especially due to housing being on the agenda um, so we can really consider um, these other, not only building new houses, but okay, what is our infrastructure right now for houses and, and are they safe for children? Great. Nick, what do you have? My kudos <clears throat> is to the people at DOT who are uh, trying and succeeding at covering up the endless, relentless graffiti on our brand new, beautiful highways that we've paid for to make Providence, especially downtown, more beautiful. And so far, they're keeping pace. It's a really daunting task. It's disheartening, isn't it? It really is. I, you know, the roads that are being put into uh, downtown are beautiful. Um, you know, the 610 connector area especially. I drive it every day, and that the graffiti is covered up almost immediately by beautiful gray paint. There you go. DOT can walk, chew gum, and pave roads all at once. All right, right. I'm making an executive decision here. I was going to talk national politics. I can't let this issue go. (laughs) There's a state rep who proposed limiting the number of self-checkout registers. Can you hear the skepticism in my voice? I don't want to poison the panel here. Let's begin with you. When you heard about this, this is... uh, uh, Representative Megan Cotter, who's yes. from um, out in your neck of the woods. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah, she is. Um, I think this is, I mean, this isn't something that came out of nowhere where you do have other states that have proposed these type, this type of legislation. Um, but I think my big surprise when, when looking at this um, was actually there was there's Republican and this was bipartisan support <laughs> Unbelievable. Here, um, with regulating businesses. Is um, it that grandma has a hard time getting out of the line? Is that the thought? I mean, yeah, I think um, what happened to letting think, a business? Run, I'm beginning to sound like Nick. What happened to um, letting a business run the way it wants to run its business? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the um, concerns here of, of too much regulation. Um, but maybe she's listening to constituents, her own experiences, and that's what is. Um, um, is driving this this legislation. I think the other thing is, now, if we were in a high unemployment rate, 10, 12 percent, you can get a job anywhere these days. So she said she's worried about jobs being taken away. When you heard about this, what were you thought about? You've seen some crazy I, legislation over the years, I know. Uh, Not that I would term this crazy, but it's a little different. It's it's out on the edge, and I was hoping that no one would bring up there was bipartisan support. <laughs> 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 oh, brought it. the Republicans oh, in, right? Oh, jeez. What am I going to say? Well, anyway, I think they're they're mistaken. And I look at the um, the self-checkout. It's actually assisted <laughs> checkout because there are people. There's somebody there. And yeah. I am occasionally one of them. I can't figure the machine out. There's someone there. Inevitably, the red light goes out and somebody right, has to help right. me, right? Right. And so 
Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, the uh, the Republican uh, reps are uh, Fenton Fung and Chippendale, just so you'll have it for the record. Mike oh, Chippendale! Just, <laughs> yes. Just digging for the record. Talk with him. And, and in fairness, Kazarian and Elzadi <laughs> on the Democratic side, just for the record. Uh, I never, I, I seldom use uh, self-checkout because I realize that, you know, it could harm the jobs. I, I heard there's a 66% reduction uh, when you can uh, uh, save on cashiers uh, like that. And I'm looking at uh, lost jobs. So I try to uh, seldom use it. And uh, because I want to make sure that people are, have as many job opportunities. Be as honest, possible. you can't figure out the barcodes. I know. That Come too. on, let's go. <laughs> that too. Be honest. That here. too. But even if I could, I still go through the line, no matter how long, because I, I want to make sure people have as much employment as possible. All right. To be continued, you love a rep who says, "I don't think this has any chance of passing," but I'm throwing it out there. If we could all be so honest, right? All right. That is all the time we have, Jim. And Nick and Emily, nice to have yeah. you back. Uh, folks, come back next week. If you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, catch us on social media. And, uh, hey, wherever you get your favorite podcast, take us along there, too. And we archive all of our shows at ripbs.org slash lively. Come back, next, uh, come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by hi I'm John Hazen White jr. for over 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS <laughs>